Welcome to The Past Less Traveled. I'm Brandon Delvo, where we do history differently. History usually involves alcohol, bad or good decisions, and things that may make you feel uncomfortable. I've been a living historian for over 15 years, history major, enthusiast, and all-around history nerd. I also bring to the table over 10 years of military experience. Here we go beyond the usual dates, names, and places of the past. We go into the stories that may connect you to the bigger historical events, or just a conversation about history over a beer, or two, or three, with everything from experts, living historians, and enthusiasts. Okay, everybody, sorry for the technical glitch. After a month-long hiatus, we are back. I am Brandon Delvo with The Past Less Traveled, and like I said, it's been like almost like trying to ride a horse again trying to remember everything it's been a lot of commitments with family and just a lot of other things going on I mean I I know everybody has probably been enjoying their summer and after the past year just doing whatever the hell they want to do so it is just really good to be back and for today I have a good friend of mine that I've known for a long time um wears many hats um not just at historic events but just many hats in general and that is Leif Halverson from Sydney, Montana. Leif, thank you for so much coming coming on the past less traveled. Ah, thanks for having me, Brandon. Appreciate it a lot. Yeah. So you are a Montana native. Um, like I said, you wear many different hats. So I mean, just start off by telling us just a lot of the different things that you really do. Um, a little bit what you do for a living. I mean, and, and then we can kind of get into more of the history side because I think that factors into a lot of your right. Yeah, so uh, I'm a uh, public school teacher. Um, I've taught K-12. I even did a semester of college at Dawson Community College. I was teaching one of the uh, oh, music technology classes there, um, a thing called MIDI, um, which is its own thing, which I won't delve into, but it's its, its own fascinating music geekdom thing. Um, and now I, I'm an elementary music teacher, and uh, I, oh gosh, um, until recently, anyway, I, I was, I'm still on the Richland County Ambulance Service. Uh, I had to let my EMT license expire here, though, on March 31st, just there was just too much going on between school and being a husband and being a father and all of that stuff, along with some of the other uh, stuff that I volunteer to help out with. So that unfortunately had to take a back burner. I still get to, to drive. I still get to take call, but in more of a supporting role. Um, versus more of the, the hands-on stuff. But with the COVID situation and everything, it just became where it just really wasn't feasible because um, a number of our EMTs were having to get quarantined. And when you're a public school teacher, finding a sub for two weeks is a kick in the pants. So that's, yep. it had to take, a, had to take a, a side burner, unfortunately. But so I do that. And then in the summertime, I am a uh, summer seasonal ranger at Fort Union Trading Post National Historic Site. And this is my seventh season as an um, summer interp ranger. And one year before that, I was there through the teacher ranger teacher program that the National Park Service has where public school teachers can come in to any of the NPS sites where they can work it out and work with the rangers there and do some different projects and leave a finished project uh, to help the site out when it's all said and done. And just kind of help to you know, establish connections with local schools in the area of um, you know, national parks as kind of a resource for them for the teaching and outreach and things of that nature. 
Well, awesome. Great. And I think there's an, one more hat and I think it, we would be uh, remiss if we didn't put a, a plug in. Um, it's a group that you've gotten me involved in and I've really enjoyed doing it. And that is the American Mountain Men. Tell, yeah. tell folks a little bit about uh, what that is. Cause I, I try to tell my coworkers and some other people and I know you're really good at giving like quick snapshots of things. So, I mean, just tell folks a little bit about like what the American Mountain Men is and just kind of what it stands for and, and what some of the ethos are of that. Right. So in a nutshell, the American Mountain Men is a highly um, addictive <laughs> <laughs> living history organization. Um, we, we try to pursue the life of that 1800 to 1840 mountaineer, uh, the, the frontiersman, that uh, trapper that's heading west uh, during that time of the fur trade that we affectionately refer to as the, uh, the rendezvous um, you know, aspect of the, the fur trade. And as we're doing so, we are studying what they used, what they had, wear those clothing, use those tools, engage in what we call experimental archaeology, where we try to experience life the same way they did with the same things that they had access to which gives us better appreciation for those men and those women that we try to emulate. Um, and through that gives us a better understanding of history. And for someone like me, who's a, a ranger at a fur trade site, that helps me do a better job of being able to relate that information to a visitor that comes in, you know? So uh, we have a, a very strict focus on historic authenticity as best as we can, um, learning about those lives, and then being able to share that with people too. We different, do different service projects. Uh, just this past weekend, we had a group of brothers down there in Pinedale, Wyoming at Museum of the Mountain Man yep. that uh, they were doing demos and um, there, there was singing as well to historic music um, and just helping the public be able to relate to and understand you know, what these guys were actually like. Yeah, no, I, I think you hit it spot on. And how many years now have you been with the AMM? Oh, gosh, uh, six or so now, I think, Okay, if I'm remembering correctly. <laughs> okay, and I mean, just so, some background for folks. So you, there's different levels within the organization, and mm -hmm. you are a boss lover, correct? correct? Correct. So, and you've fulfilled the, the requirements that are necessary to go from a pilgrim or basically like a prospect then into that next level and then there's other levels beyond that that you can get into correct yeah yeah the the next uh level so to speak would be hiverano um, and what happens is is we've got a list of 20 requirements that focuses on outdoor skills that these men would have had would have had to have a certain level of proficiency and just to be able to survive out there um, engaging in that lifestyle, working for whether as a free trapper or as a lot of them were uh, company men, um, uh, being able to perform some of the different tasks as well too, like being able to trap, you know, depending on what your state's regulations are, but, but being able to demonstrate, being able to do that, um, how to prepare uh, those animals for market, you know, being able to hunt under primitive settings got 20, 20 different things that we got to do to be a boss loper. You've got to have 10 of those and to be a Hiverano, you got to knock out all 20. So that's, that's what I'm working on now. I think I've got four left uh, to be able to get the, the level of Hiverano. I was going to say you're getting pretty close and then I'm, I'm getting pretty close going from Pilgrim to, mm -hmm. to yeah. boss loper. So I'm, I'm getting down to there. And I mean, for folks that don't know, it's 
first off, an honor to be asked to, to go into this group. And then just even um, you were talking about, there were some fellow brothers that were down in Pinedale, Wyoming. And I always like to brag to people about back in the, the summer of 2019, the AMM brothers that did Ashley's return yeah. in the Rockies that went the 700 plus miles on horseback and then were on a keel boat on the river and ate a lot of period rations. I mean, that there's been what national geographic articles done about the amm like it, it's it's yeah. very prestigious i mean and it's if you want to see people that do it right and know how to do it and know the research and everything i mean it is definitely something to follow and look at if you are um maybe not even just an enthusiast in the western experience but i mean if you really want to dig further into maybe a not so much talked about version of history you know and more of the the mainstream culture um it's definitely something to look into yeah, you know, um, that, <laughs> and being able to do some of those different things, like I've been able to do a five-day keelboat trip, which did a, a fair amount of prep work for and things of, of that nature. Uh, a guy by the name of Mike Nottingham has a two-third scale keelboat called the General William Ashley. Got to spend uh, five days. We did 50-some-odd miles on the Upper Missouri Breaks in between Virgil Ferry and where the Judith flows in. This is up by Fort Benton area. But some of these longer ones like that, like what those guys did, took several years worth of planning. You know, what kind of period rations can we take? Uh, are we going to be able to go through places where the horses are going to have feed as they were doing the overland portion? Um, and as they were building um, a keelboat-ish type of vessel that could be certified to legally float, I mean they're they're coming across and tackling a whole bunch of these these issues just to make this type of an experience possible and then along the way too with a lot of these guys and and it did with with the ashley guys um they were stopping along the way uh doing talks um we were able to work it out once they got to the con mouth of the confluence they actually were at fort union for five six days we're doing demos for folks there and was able to arrange to get them to come out to my school uh, to talk with our students, you know, three, you know, hardcore smelly dudes <laughs> that have been on at that point, it was on the, the river portion. Um, they, they had a bull boat and they had, they had a couple of pirogues that they were taking up and um, you've got the campfire smoke that's built into them. You've got the grease and the grime and not that they're, you know, living, you know, this, this dirty experience or whatever, that's just what happens while you're trying to pursue this. And uh, they, they jumped on the opportunities to, if you've got a group of people that wants to learn more, you know, uh, they were willing to do that. So um, as, as much as they were getting a lot out of just the experience of doing that, a lot of other people got a lot out of their experience as well too, being able to show firsthand to people, this is what these guys were going through. And it, and it took a lot of work. I mean, there've been a number of, of our AMM guys that have done that. Um, that's one of the more recent ones that have, that have taken place. Absolutely. And for those who don't know, um, and feel free to add in Leif at, at any time, just for some clarification for those who might not know, a bull boat was essentially more of a, like a Native American watercraft where you would take a buffalo yeah. hide with, um, you know, native foliage and essentially make a boat and a pirogue is a, like a more of a French version of a, like a, what, a smaller draft boat. Would that be more correct to say? Yeah, think think of like a canoe with flat sides um, and 
uh, points at, at the end. So similar to a canoe, but different, uh, typically made out of wood. That bull boat, um, they're making a round frame out of willow and a green uh, bull buffalo, hence bull boat uh, hide is actually being stretched over that and laced onto it. Uh, Carl Bodmer has got a couple of images that uh, if you Google Carl Bodmer and bull boat, it should come up and you'll be able to see what some of those looked like from the historic eye anyway from 1833. But yeah, they're, they're a unique uh, watercraft vessel that uh, the tribes, especially in our neck of the woods, um, Mandan Indian villages uh, that they were using quite a bit. Yeah, and I mean, I know uh, if you've read like Undaunted Courage, by Stephen Ambrose, there's a good description in there of, of them actually making the bull boats. Yeah. So, yep. I mean, that's just some background. And, and I'll, I'll be sure when, when I put out the recording of this, which will probably be tomorrow, I'll try to find some pictures. And you reminded me with your background from our canoe trip that we did on the Missouri back in October, Mark Scott, friend of ours from Jamestown, has a P-Rogue. So, we don't have a bull boat in that picture, but I can definitely post one up for reference. So that's something you can, yeah. you can find here on our Facebook page and on our Instagram at the past less traveled. So I'll be sure to, to do that just for some visual, just so you, you know, listeners can get an idea of there wasn't just big steamships. There wasn't just, you know, birch bark canoes. I mean, there was various different ways that people found for conveyance. I mean, like Ashley's return is a good snapshot of just, the long distances on horseback or maybe having to trade for horses at that time and then actually constructing your own water conveyance or if you were in with a company that had a keel boat where you had that I mean and still like beyond just the, the skill of making that the actual work of being on the river on the keel boat and maybe that's something that we could talk a little bit about when you did the five day of keel boat trip I mean there really when you were on the river wasn't any real idle time to spare. I mean, everybody had a role to play to keep that craft on the water. Yeah, I mean, one of the advantages that we had is we were traveling with the current. So fortunately for us, we didn't have to do any of the cordelling. And what cordelling is, is on a lot of these keel boats and they're ranging, your average size keel boat is usually between 60 and 70 feet. The one that we were on was 30, 35, something like that. Um, a cordel line is this 1,000 foot line or long rope. And what would happen is as they are, they're, they're in a lot of cases, literally pulling the craft upstream. So um, a crew of, of 20 would be average-ish for what they would have on there. And uh, so you, you would have a number of them on the shoreline pulling this 1,000 foot long cordel rope um, upstream. Um, another thing that they would do too is they had these essentially like setting poles that, that had a metal furl on the end um, that they were they would walk the length of the keel boat. There were cleats about every foot or so on either side of this cabin type thing in the middle of the craft that they'd be able to push it as they're walking. Um, many of them had sails, especially the later you get on in the 1820s and 1830s. Many of them had a sail rigged so that if there was available wind, um, it, it would make life a lot easier. Uh, you had uh, um, different uh, oarsmen that were on there as well too. Um, and if a smaller keelboat oftentimes had a, a tiller 
or, or a rudder type of a thing on the back. And larger ones would actually have one at the front and the back where they could steer literally the entire vessel as they're going through tight spots or, oh, there's a sandbar coming up that you just now notice so quickly we can adjust how things are. So for us, when we were on ours, again, we're going downstream and we all took turns on everything, running the tiller and um, taking turns with the rowing and cycling through uh, just so that not everyone's just, you know, completely spent by the time you get to where your camp is, because then you've got to unload all that gear that you've got on that keel boat so that you can yep. make camp so that you can eat. You know, uh, we took turns standing watch um, the first night. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the island that we were on, but uh, I was I, I was on guard duty that night. We we talked amongst ourselves and decided which hours we were going to do stuff. I think I was on from the midnight to 1am. And so I'm, I'm, there's still a fire going. I, I am out of my bedding and I'm walking around with this Northwest trade gun and I am keeping an eye on the river. I'm listening for things. And uh, for, for about five minutes, I, I was there, man, 1823, you know, I was, <laughs> I was there. Uh, because you've got this keel boat there. You hear the river slashing against the side of it. You've got the firelight coming there. All the guys have got their, their bedding out and everything. And I was, I was concerned that we were being watched and was keeping my eyes open going, so this neck of the woods, this is the area that the Blackfeet are in, where would they be coming from? And I for five minutes, I, I, I was there and I was, I was keeping my eyes open for that, which was an incredible experience and uh, was starting to not freak out, but get a little bit concerned. I had a, a game plan in my head where if something did come up, like who I was going to wake up first and kind of get the ball rolling to have everybody ready, where if we needed to just leave our stuff and get in the keel boat and get on out of there, we, we could do that and then realized, uh, you know, dude, that's not going to happen, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but uh, to, to experience that though, um, that's an incredible thing. And again, I, I get to use that as a teaching tool and I'm talking to people and I'm talking to visitors of what life was like for these guys. Uh, we ate uh, you know, a bunch of period rations. We, we got to eat bear. We ate elk. We ate bison. Uh, we ate fish, um, not to mention pilot bread that that we'd made ourselves as well too, and some other period food. And that's that's what we ate the whole five days that we were there. And each night we'd cycle through all of that again, you know, um, as we were going through um, those 50 miles. Yeah, and I know when people ask me or they, they might show an interest or start asking questions about why we do what we do doing living history, that always comes up is that you hope for for those of us, I mean, we appreciate history by doing it, that we hope that we actually have those moments now. I mean, you always try to put yourself in the shoes of, I mean, if it were the real thing with what we know now, I mean, yeah, there would be definitely be the fear factor. I mean, I don't think we ever had so much of the, the actual fear factor that, you know, we were going to be attacked or, or like in your situation that you were, but you hope that you get those moments because then you just, you appreciate it just a a little bit more, little by little, you keep appreciating that. It doesn't matter if you do fur trade or, or civil war. I mean, you always hope for those little, 
like ambiance type moments. Yeah, it it transcends whatever genre of living history that you're doing, whether whether it's it's fur trade, military, um, you know, Western mining, um, frontier settler, whatever it is. Uh, you know, every single one of those spots within living history, there are little moments like that where where folks are able to experience that, and you just have this aha moment where you were there. You know. Uh, um, it, literally experiencing life in a similar fashion as much as we're able to to those people that we emulate and that's that is so incredible you know that that's one of the um, <laughs> part of the addiction is that that high from being able to experience that um, as we're pursuing this 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 lifestyle of of experiencing the past and sharing it with others absolutely now I kind of want to rewind a little bit I know we really got into some of the AMM and some of the other groups. And I mean, I, I know, for example, I started in the Fort Union muzzle loaders back in like 2007. And I know you came in a lot later, I believe like around 2012, 2013. Yeah. I kind of vividly remember some of like the first meetings that you came to. Um, let, you know, just explain to folks like where your interest in history came and then like where you really, I mean, wanted to take it to that next level by just getting started in the Fort Union muzzle loaders, and then even you know going farther, where you know you got involved into the AMM. Yeah, so like as a kid, like Fort Union has always been there, uh, and Fort Buford had as well. And over the course of my childhood, um, you know the the reconstruction happened. The first time I was out there was when the the wonderful double wide uh, trailer visitor center was located there, and then I was out there again. <laughs> And then I was out there again after the bourgeois house was reconstructed, which which contains our visitor center there now today. And then I would be there again after the Palisade walls and the corner bastions and the trade house and clerk's office were all all put up. Um, so I, I got to see that over the course of my childhood in scouts. We did what was supposed to be a 20 mile hike from Sydney to Snowden Bridge, which is approximately two river miles away from Fort Union. It's not. It was like 26, 27. Not that I'm still bitter about that or anything. And we spent the night there um, crossing this bridge that we should have never been allowed to cross. But anyway, it was a different time. And uh, we, we canoed in the next day. It was a Sunday and we caught the last day of rendezvous. And some of the folks were packing up and I was just like, oh man, this is awesome. You know, I, I would love to be able to experience this. And I'd, I'd seen the sixth when I was younger doing some of the encampment things at Fort Buford as well. And uh, graduated from high school, went to college, got married. Uh, we taught in North Dakota, a little community called Bow Bells for three years, then, then ended up coming back home to Sydney and uh, was, was talking to my wife uh, Kim and said, you know, usually Labor Day weekend, there's some kind of history event thing at Fort Union. Um, I'm going to double check this. And on Facebook, they had stuff. I, um, I, I had liked the Facebook page and this event was coming up. So um, she and I and our, our girls and a couple, well, Garrick was born at this point too. A um, couple of our friends went out there and caught the tail end of living history weekend um, bumped into a gal that we'd gone to college with who uh, I met her husband he came to a jazz band performance that, that we had um, and then get introduced to a guy by the name of Dave Fenders who's kind of the granddaddy of, of Fort Union as we know it today essentially 
And uh, I had remembered him from scouts. And, and this, this just shows the importance of what we do as living historians, right? As we share with people, we share with the public about, about history and about what life was like for them. He was at this Boy Scout event at the uh, Epping Bible Camp that, that we were at for this camporee. And I had met Dave Fenders. He was, I remember very distinctly him talking to us about making and eating parched corn. That was one of the things. And I got introduced to him and I said, I, I know you, I've met you before. And then I got introduced to Paul Bauer as well, who's played a, a major role in the, the muzzleloaders also um, at a different Boy Scout event. It was at a Klondike Derby and he was there with a dog sled and a group of dogs talking to us about, about that. And he was talking about the history of mushing and stuff. And uh, Dave, Dave and Paul were then talking to me and they're like, well, I mean, that's it, man. You got to come to a club meeting. And I was like, this is awesome. As <laughs> having no idea at all what I was about to get myself into. And Kim was like, okay, look, I, I get that you need something like this. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll support you and if that's fine. Um, went to meetings. Hey, Leif, we've got winter camp coming up. This is in January. Um, I've got nothing for historic clothing. Um, so I, I was messaging Rod Lassie and Rod Lassie's like, okay, so here's, you know, focus on these things and, and don't worry about having everything because we all have to start someplace and I've got I've got wool blankets that you can borrow and I, I got to spend that weekend in the cabin where I got to spend more time with some of the other guys in, in the club and got done with that weekend was like oh my gosh yeah no this is this is happening this is this is something I'm going to continue to do rendezvous came up spent the night that that Saturday night won a tin cup Kim came out with the girls and Garrick because we had Garrick at that point um she stole my cup it's the one that she still uses while we're in camp now and uh she'd said to me again i get that you need this and we'll come out as a family and we'll do this with you for father's day this will be our father's day present to you but uh, don't expect me to be camping in a canvas tent and cooking over a fire and anything like that a couple of years later she says okay since we're doing this now and i was like oh the verbiage has changed it's we now yeah. she's like i'm i'm gonna need some some cooking gear and i'm like we'll, we'll get you cook gear that is not a problem at all and one of the things that i got her was this nesting kettle set uh for our anniversary um and and mother's day and it's just it's taken off uh, from that, you know, um, just because of guys who had spare time that enjoyed history, that were given the opportunity to share it with the public, to share it with a group of Boy Scouts on two separate occasions. I met these guys and got these things stirring in my head about history and wanting to be able to experience those things. And I would meet them as a full grown man later these guys that introduced me to it are some of the same guys that are my mentors today, you know, um, and that that's incredible. And, and that that's the power of that, that um, public service aspect that a lot of us as living historians do. You, you never have any idea what kind of an impact that's going to make on a person. And, and it was huge for me, you know, later on, I, I would be given the opportunity to, to prove myself in, in the AMM um, for guys that, you know, that, that we know that are, are awesome folks. Uh, Chris Floyd and Rod Lassie were my, my sponsors. And un unfortunately, we, we lost him this past year, Mr. Mike Kassler. Yeah. Uh, the, the four of us, um, we, we chartered the Fort Henry party of the American Mountain Men. Um, and since then, you know, uh, 
uh, Cedric, my, my brother, uh, he's a boss sloper now too. Terry Madden, he's, he's one of our guys too. And, uh, you're, you're finishing up stuff to be boss sloper as well, you know, and, in yep. all of us, we still do that, that public service aspect of working with the public and talking with them and everything. And that's just, um, to me, I think it's an incredibly important part of it. Some things that we do just for us, like our AMM camps, um, but but we also focus on educating the public as well too, you know, and it's a, we've got a great group of guys in our party that all have strengths and weaknesses and we fill those gaps and we help complement each other as we're working with the public on these, these different things, you know, um, and you end up, end up doing crazy things like, uh, you know, um, <laughs> reproducing Cavendish packages and, and making these, uh, carrots of, of tobacco that are, are wrapped in uh, linen and then you wrap them with the hemp rope on the outside yep. uh, that, that we do is again service projects to doing crazy things like learning how to make a you know a, a keelboat sail you know just <laughs> stuff is, that you never that thought you're working you're, on that's what I've been working on yeah I've been wondering yeah. okay so for those that don't know what life I mean you spend a good portion of your time as a seasonal ranger out in the trade house wearing historical clothing interacting yeah. with the public and I mean you're not going to get as many visitors let's say on like a Saturday afternoon as compared to a Tuesday afternoon now dates times like it's you know some days it's probably why is it so damn busy on a Tuesday but on average like there's downtime where you can work on a haversack. You can um, like resole the bottom of your moccasins. And I've been wondering what the hell you've been working on because you have all this nautical stuff now. And I'm like, well, yeah, the river was there, but I'm like, no, you're like going into like heavy nautical stuff. Like I'm ready to start using a lot of like nautical terms with you and, and everything else. And that is what you've been making. Okay. It all yeah. makes sense now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's not going to be, it's not going to be what it should be, but but it's version 1.0. Uh, I'm using uh, 11 ounce uh, Russia sheeting. Um, there's a whole bunch of you that have no idea what that is at all. Basically, it's it's a it's a hemp linen, is what it is. That was one of the common um, uh, fabrics used in in making sails, um, and I'm I'm making it out of an old ground cloth that I'd made out of out of Russia sheeting. Um, cutting it in two, two places, resewing those seams because the, on average, these, uh, the pieces of fabric that were being used for sail construction was only about 24 to 28 inches wide. And the fabric that I used was like 58 to 60. So I cut that with the overlap and everything and sewing it, but, but it's not just doing that. It's, it's learning how to do that. So like I, I made the Diddy bag first, which is this canvas bag where all of the stitch work and seam work on there, you're using the common stitches and techniques that you would for uh, sail fabrication and, and sail maintenance. Um, and you've got uh, this knot work and splicing aspect of it as well too. And you put all your tools in that. And so going through that was just warming up for trying to make this thing. Um, and learning about how to do the roping around the outside and where your grommets are supposed to go and figuring all of that out. But you got to understand not just how you put the sail together, how does it attach to the arm that's going to attach to, you know, so like looking at the rigging and going, all right, this is why I need to put this in the way it is. And you have to, around this rope that's being sewed on, you've got to wrap other stuff like this thin tarred marlin around it, because that's where these blocks and tackles are going to go in and stuff. And so it's, uh, it, it's been a, 
I've learned a lot of stuff just so that I can sit down and cut and sew canvas. It's been, it's been an, an involved project, but it, it should be pretty sweet when it's all said and done. We'll be able to use it as a teaching tool. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's a lot of time, a lot of patience. And, you know, once again, for those who don't know, when, when Leif's mentioning grommets, we're not talking about steel grommets. We're talking about hand-stitched grommets, which take a, an enormous amount of time and patience and a lot of redundancy, I mean, to do it. But it, it's, it's a craft. I mean, I don't have a lot of that skill. And right now, I don't have the time or patience. I mean, I might be lucky to resole my moccasins before Labor Day. I mean, before Living History Weekend. So... That's, you know, well, that, and I, I did talk with Brandon Lewis about um, the like leather uh, buckskin slip pouches. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I mean, I'm looking at doing some of that. I mean, and, and that all takes time. Um, I mean, none of us were totally born with like the, the best knack to sew. I mean, I'm, you know, you probably weren't going to be destined for doing that, or at least you maybe thought you weren't like when you first got into this. And I mean, it just all takes time. And, and just a lot of like trial and errors. So kudos to you. And I'm so glad I finally know, damn it, what the hell you've been working on in there. It's like been like the little shop of horrors or something. I'm like, what is Leif doing every day? It's all just like just white stuff he's sewing on. So now he's got this hook that he was filing down, which is tied off to the wall and he's sticking it in a canvas and what in the heck? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's what the project has been. Yeah. I'm like, when did the trade house become like Charlie day's angry room from like, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. I'm like, you're not breaking like shrub bottles now, are you? Or no, no, I can't afford to do that. They cost too much. You know? Yeah. No, touche, touche. Um, I know we're kind of coming down here into like about the last 15 minutes or so. Um, and I mean, your background is perfect um, for what I kind of want to talk about. Like, I, I mean, even, you know, you, you mentioned some of the fellow AMM brothers and the Fort Union muzzle loaders. And one thing I will put up on social media is the promotional video that the National Park Service did back in 2016, because that does have Mr. Fenders on there. So everybody yeah. will have an idea. And I mean, Dave is an awesome guy, years of knowledge. He's been to every single Fort Union rendezvous, what, 38 years in a row? Yeah. Been to every yeah. rendezvous. Um, I mean, an immense amount of information. And looks like he literally came right out of the history book. I mean, just oh, yeah. knows it, lives it. And then Mr. Paul Bauer, too. I mean, just the ethos, the... And the family aspect of everything too gets shown in that video. And I mean, even just after this, this uh, uh, past rendezvous in mid June, after a pandemic, you know, something that we didn't see coming back in 2020. I remember back when I started in 2007 with the Fort Union muzzleloaders, there was hardly any kids. And now there's what, 10 plus kids running around age range from early to mid teens all the way down to well my kids even came out for a you know a day like two and one and a half so yeah i mean that's one thing too that maybe um maybe might not be so much amm driven but the fact that there's groups out there that promote a family-friendly atmosphere like the fort union muzzleloaders do it's a great thing to get the family involved in and even in the video your wife kim says you know fort union's a safe place your kids can run around almost just about anywhere and know that 
that living history family will, if something's going on that shouldn't be, or if somebody's hurt, that they're going to be taken care of. Yeah, if I, I, I'll tack onto that just a little bit um, with that, the, the family aspect of that, the more that you spend time on the ground with these people in these different organizations, whether it's, whether it's fur trade or it's military or whatever, um, you know, and you get to know these people, there, there does become this, this tightness, not that everyone always gets along, not that everyone necessarily <laughs> even likes each other, but, um, oh gosh, this was about five years ago my kids are running around in the courtyard and I'm working in the blacksmith shop. And uh, this, this well-intentioned lady that was just concerned for the well-being of these, these um, you know, orphan style children that are running around in bare feet in this, in this courtyard uh, stops and talks to Paul Bauer and points to the kids running in the courtyard. And she goes, isn't anybody watching these children? And Paul Bauer just kind of smiled and said, ma'am, you go over and walk over next to one of those kids and you're about to find out how many people are watching these children. You know, um, you know, you might not know who all the kids are, but you know which camp they belong to. And if there's hinkiness or whatever, it's not uncommon or, or perceived hinkiness. It's not uncommon for someone who might not even know who your kids are to suddenly appear and just kind of ascertain the situation and uh, if they feel like people need to be run off, they'll, they'll do that because those are camp kids and you know, we're just not going to tolerate that kind of nonsense or monkey business. And then you know, to communicate with those, those parents as well too, hey, this is what I saw, they're, they're fine or whatever. Or in case you didn't know your kids were throwing rocks in the porta potties, you might want to do something about that. Yeah, sorry. Thanks for, thanks for communicating that. You know? um, but it, it, it is a wonderful environment where your family can be a part of what's going on. And because of that family aspect, there are concessions made for that as well too, right? Like to have a completely 100% authentic outfit for a four-year-old that you're hoping it's gonna fit them this season, maybe next, you know, there, there's a certain element of concession that's, that's made with that. Um, understanding that you're doing this as a family, you know, and there's a, and a lot of times people will be like, Hey, see that your kids are getting older. My kids don't fit in this clothing anymore. And a lot of times we, we just hand them down to the next family based upon where they're at and the growing cycle of things. You know, there've been some outfits of clothing that we've been the recipients of, and we've gotten to pass on to other people that have gone through four families so that they can show up at Fort Union and do it together as a family. And you don't, you don't see that in every, I, I hate to call it the hobby, but but no, we'll it, call it's that the in hobby. this case, right. <laughs> um, in in this hobby, this is one of the one of the unique things about that. Not that you don't see them other places, but it's it's one of the special things about this one. Yeah, um, not not to make a negative statement. I mean, we could almost probably do a whole episode on the weird intricacies or what get people fired up in the hobby. I mean, that we could probably do a two or three bit part just full of nothing but stories of everything from petty fights to I mean you you name it like people arguing over stitching on something like I mean it's you know it's all how far you want to go with it but you're right I mean getting back to the family side of it knowing that you can incorporate your family and it can be somewhat overwhelming getting your family involved right away it's a lot to handle but it I mean there's also you know an age a little bit of a age consideration at times i know you brought gunny out when he was very very young he was six months old wrapped yeah. in a uh <laughs> a polar fleece 
um, Hudson Bay style blanket. <laughs> I, I don't recommend that for everyone, but that did happen to work out for us. Sure. And one thing, you know, talking about historic authenticity, I mean, Charles Larpenter, who was up on the upper Missouri at Fort Union and in that area for literally almost 40 years, talks, you know, there, he's even documented, he took a census of the fort at one time. So, I mean, families you know, engagés or uh, basically just everyday common workers would either marry into a tribe or, you know, have families. So, I mean, the aspect of having children present at these things adds that other level to it. There would have been children running around. There would have been that interaction. I mean, you know, makes you wonder how many parents yelled at their kids throughout the, the fort's operating history, you know, stay away from the horses. Don't do that. Don't touch that. Leave that spear alone, you know, Right. <laughs> hands out of the fire. I mean, <laughs> don't look at Kenneth McKenzie that way. I mean, who knows? It, 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 I mean, but it adds that extra layer and it's great to see kids and it's great to, to see families involved in the Fort Union muzzle loaders. Um, between me and you, I still have to pay my dues, but um, I mean, I tip my hat to the Fort Union muzzle loaders. Um, I think to kind of wrap it up, I mean, even on just like a light note. I mean, like I said, you have you have a great background picture from a canoe trip we did in mid-October of last year. We put in at the tail race up by the Garrison Dam here in North Dakota and went all the way down to uh, the Fort Mandan historic site out by Washburn. Um, and I mean, just a great group of people. We had Paul Allenbecker from Minot, North Dakota. Mark Scott was there. Uh, we got our Minnesota guys along. Your brother's there in the picture. Um, and I know you got, I mean, we got, I thought of a, the funny story when you were on the keelboat trip, if you want to tell that or, um, the dentist story, which is, is also really good. I mean, we could, I think do just like funny campfire stories of just being with this great group of people. So, um, if you were to have a choice between the two, the one from the keelboat trip, when you ran in the, into the visitors or the dentist one, I mean, totally up to you to kind of wrap this up. I think that would be a good way to close this. Uh, I'll share the one from the, the keel boat trip. Um, we will, we'll save the dentist one for, for a different time, perhaps. I like but, your uh, <laughs> <laughs> So, so we're, um, we're on the upper Missouri breaks and we're traveling along and we're stopping at these different um, Bureau of land management sites, just so that there's no confusion with that acronymism. Um, it's an organization in, in Montana that's responsible for maintaining and taking care of our public lands. And so along the Upper Missouri Breaks, they have tracked down where the Corps of Discovery camped. So we stopped at this one because we were going to be, um, there's a spot there where there are petroglyphs. And so Captain Mike had a stop there. We put in at um, where a reasonable docking area was because there technically wasn't one and we, we pound some stakes and we, we go up there. And as we walk through, we're starting to realize that there are some tents and folks that are there and everything. And so we go and we check out these petroglyphs and they're, they're amazing. It was really cool to be able to see those. And we come back and there is like a tent village now where there wasn't before. And there are all these, these girls and these older gentlemen. And when I say older gentlemen, I, I mean people that are between my age and my father's age. Um, and we weren't exactly sure what, what was going on. And they're asking if they can get pictures with us and everything. And so you've got all these girls that are coming and, 
they're they're taking pictures and this one guy who obviously was this girl's dad she comes and puts her arm around me and can I uh, get my picture with you? I'm like, sure. And then her dad appears and goes, Hey, sweetie, how about you put your arm around me? And right away, I'm like, yep, you, you better do that. You know, be sure you're, you're, you're in that picture with your dad. We take off and we stop at a place called hole in the wall where there's this high up in the sandstone. There's, there's this massive hole in this, this sandstone wall. And so we spend the night and we wake up and we're eating our food and everything and kind of getting ready. And all of a sudden, this whole crew of canoes and this giant inflatable pink flamingo are floating down the river and put in <laughs> where we're at. And we have no idea at all what is going on here. And uh, so, so the people come up and they thought we were some kind of an attraction to begin with, you know, that that's part of this river excursion that they're doing. And what ends up happening is that this was a school group from a boarding school for uh, teens that are, are having a rough go of it in life, um, facing a variety of different um, you know, struggles and issues. And they, all of those girls that were there had earned the, uh, the option of being able to go on this trip with their dads. And one guy and his daughter um, sat and talked with me for a while and uh, She'd, she'd had a rough go, was, was struggling with different things, and they found this place in Montana, and so they, they liked it, and she went, and the whole point of this trip was them to work on their communication skills um, as a family, so they're spending four or five days on the river, and they're canoeing together, trying to not shout out each other, you know, you know, you're doing it wrong, dad, I know what I'm doing, and all that that kind of stuff, but, but to also bond. And so they, they shared their stories with us and uh, asked us and we shared stories with them. We ended up doing black powder firing demonstrations for them. Sawyer and I just go into interp mode and we do the same spiel that we did when we were doing stuff at Fort Union. And um, someone ended up needing to use the bathroom. And of course there's no restroom and just went and took care of that right inside of everybody. I don't know if they were aware of that or not, but we're like okay this is, <laughs> this is interesting but uh yeah and then then they waved and they uh they, they cheered as we as they they sailed away from us but it was it was just weird they kept on like leapfrogging us and but then we got to have those those conversations with them and they're like oh it's awesome that you could do this and they're taking tours of the keel boat and everything and we're showing them our camps and it was it was it was a pretty good time i was not expecting that to happen um there there was a german dude too who was there who got a picture of us and uh, was traveling via the river and on bike and stuff in the United States, who wrote a book called I'm Fluss. And I can't tell you off the top of my head what that means in, in German, but um, there's a picture of us standing in front of our keelboat that's actually in the book from that trip. Uh, just was a guy going and just thought it was awesome. And um, I think they called us fur trade reenactors once it goes through the translation in German or whatever. But uh, but yeah, was was not expecting, you know, these 40 some odd girls and their dads giving us threatening looks and we weren't doing anything wrong. Like you guys surprised us, you know, sorry about that. But just wanted to come and take pictures with these these guys on this uh, this keelboat because it's not like that happens on a Tuesday night, you know, type of a thing. You know, only on the upper Missouri River breaks, apparently. Well, and I mean, I think some of the public perception is that we're as like living historians confined to historic sites so that you know, from their perspective, that probably that, oh shit, look of like coming around the corner, like you don't expect to see that every day when you're going down the river, 
or just not at all you want a canoe trip you come around the corner you're like wait a minute did i like go did i just go through the stargate or like what's going on here but then the the rewarding fact is that people see it they ask tons of questions which is i mean we always love answering questions and talking about what we do because then we're educating people further on what we're doing so i mean the fact you got to do firing demonstrations um and just i mean showing people the gear and just how everything works i mean those people like i you know i brought forward to you like some of my ethos of they're going to pass it on to somebody and you guys did it right they're going to walk away with a deeper appreciation of what our ancestors did you know up in that that neck of the woods during that time period or those time periods and they're going to pass that along and that's valuable that's that's what we want i mean out of you know, all this that we do and, and, and whatnot is to, to, you know, pass that along to the public. Yeah. Yeah. You know, then um, when we were at Fort Casper, I remember you talking to a, to a lady and her daughter that had come and she was asking about, you know, why we do these different things. And you said, well, you met us halfway. You made the decision to come here today. And kind of our version of the thank you of that is to be able to tell you about this thing that you're seeing. We've, we've studied this. We want to do a good job at it because you came here to see this and to learn about it. And we, we want to make sure you get the right information and give you a glimpse of what this life is like. You know, um, anytime if anyone sees us in historic clothing doing these different things, you know, people should know it's all right to come up and, and approach these weird looking guys and weird looking ladies and uh, ask questions, ask about what's going on. They've got no problem talking to you about that or explaining why they're wearing the specific types of clothing that there are or why they're doing a certain task a certain way. Um, take advantage of those opportunities to learn about you know, our nation's history and about our forefathers and about our ancestors um, so that you can have a better appreciation of what those folks went through you know, for the, the life that we get to experience now. You know, take advantage of those opportunities. That, that's what we're here for. Absolutely. I would, I would be remiss. So I've been going between us doing, you know, live on zoom right now. And then, you know, there's a slight delay on the Facebook and that's in another window. And like part of the way through the story, when you're on the river, um, I've been, I have not been looking at any of the comments or anything like that. And I mean, one person we haven't mentioned that is a wealth of knowledge. And I've seen, um, I mean, his reputation definitely, you know, uh, precedes him is a Carl Coster from Grand Portage. And yes, he put a comment yeah. here in the, the man, the myth and the legend, Carl well, freaking Coster. Yeah. Yeah. And he's got, I mean, he's got just tons of cool stories in general, but he, he put a, he put a comment in here that uh, Fenders was friends with Mackenzie Culbertson and Denning. Like, <laughs> I mean, just <laughs> it's, it, it's Carl. I mean, I, I gotta just say it for that, but it, just the fact that like, I mean, Dave lives it, knows it, loves it. And we're all in the same boat. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, two years old or, you know, 99. I mean, we cover a wide range of ages, jobs. Um, we all come from different walks of life. And I mean, you know, you're an EMT, you're a music teacher. Your brother Cedric is a music teacher, um, which I think, by the way, we got to do two plugs here for you. <laughs> Because I know, I know you got a shitload of CDs still in the back of your truck, probably. You were yeah, that, Cedric that weren't so. stolen on that trip. <laughs> yep, and I think you need to also talk about um, 
your other project that you do on YouTube. So to kind of wrap this up, I, Hey, it's, it's no different than like the show hot ones when the guy's like this camera, this camera, tell us what's going on in your life. I think you need to do a plug for the music side and the alcohol side. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so my brother Cedric and I, we do, uh, we've got this historic music group called Eric and Artie of the upper Missouri. And uh, we've, we've got a YouTube channel where you can check those things out. We haven't updated in a while because, you know, the pandemic and, and stuff. And uh, we, we actually didn't do any recording this year at, uh, at uh, Rondi, but it's possible this September we'll, when we're at Bannock, we might be able to record the next one. But we use a combination of, of uh, music and humor to teach about history. And uh, we'll, we'll do these, we'll research them and talk about all of the music, what was going on at the time frame, and just explain what these songs are about. Um, so that, that's been a real fun project to do. I play minstrel banjo, so Drake plays uh, guitar on that, and then we, we both sing. And sometimes some other instruments get, get brought in. So researching those things to make sure that we can do it as, as well as that we can to be able to talk to people about those and demonstrate those different things. Um, and then as a result of the pandemic, since it's come up, um, <laughs> I, I started taking on a, what's hopefully an entertaining and educational uh, program uh, called Drinking Through History, where we encourage you while you are watching this, you know, 20 to 30 minute program to, to have a cold one or not of your choice while you sit back and, and enjoy it and listen about this history where we connect these unrelated things together um, to, to teach about a, a thing in history where then that ties directly into a, a historic cocktail or beverage that we're going to build. And ahead of time, I, I release, you know, what, what things you're going to need. If you need a cocktail shaker or a cocktail stirring glass, you know, what spirits you need to make, whatever it is. And you don't find out what it is until you watch the episode on, on that evening. So that's uh, drinking through history with Leifi Halverson, that's me. And both of those, and along with uh, Eric and Artie, um, you can find them on YouTube. Once a month, we try to do that. We're actually gonna be doing a uh, um, Drinking Through History uh, bonus features episode that'll be coming out on Saturday. Um, you'll just have to watch and see what that one is, but that'll be a, a shorter one, a modification of a previous drink that was actually an improved cocktail. And that's what Jerry Thomas calls it in his cocktail book, <laughs> the improved whatever cocktail. So I'm looking forward to that. Have you ever thought of incorporating the two? Like, so Eric and Artie also do the rest stop tour, which I think, I think you need to go in. Like, I'm sorry, we can do, we can do funny stories all night long, but we could <laughs> just for like the general public, like you guys did a, an actual rest stop tour where you played your instruments. You know, um, every, every successful group has done this in history, actually. Yeah. You know, the core of discovery did this, you know, in, in fact, you know, every time that they stopped, they, they played music. That, that's not true, but it should have been because it'd make an awesome story. We, uh, we were going to this bluegrass. Um, it wasn't exactly a festival uh, in uh, Jamestown. And uh, so us and, and Cedric and I and our, and our wives and Paul Bauer, we, we go down there um, to Jamestown to go to this. And because of the weather, it's canceled. The three guys that had the farthest distance to travel are the ones that actually made it to Jamestown. And um, uh, John Andrews, who's one of the, is an amazing banjo player. Um, he made it there and we got to do some playing. And on the way back, we were going to stop in Mandan and spend the night at our friend's house, Ryan and Kayla Schwartz. And I said to Cedric, um, 
how many rest stops do you figure there are between Jamestown and uh, Mandan? He's like, I don't know. So we, we looked it up and there were three and we're like, okay, so at, at each one of these, we're going to stop. We're going to hop out. We're going to go inside and we're going to live stream. We're, we're going to, we're, we're still going to do music, man, whether it worked out or not, we're going to do the, the North Dakota rest stop tour. And so there were these three rest stops and we did a different one and we, we didn't have all of our historic clothing on, but we're wearing like our, our historic hats and you I've got a top my hat. Banjo. You're in there yeah. playing the banjo with a top hat on. Yeah. Yeah. Blue jeans, t-shirt and a historic top hat from the 1850s. Yeah. And um, sometimes people are walking in and they've got no freaking clue what's going on at all, you know, type of a thing. But the last one, friends of ours knew we were going to be there and stopped there knowing that we were going to be there. And then that night we did a Facebook live concert from their house where uh, Ryan got to participate with us. And he, of course, didn't have any of the, the clothing that we had. And we, we always use middle names. Like my middle name is Eric. Cedric's middle name is Arthur, hence Eric and Artie. Ryan's middle name is Craig. So Craig actually got to be part of that concert with us using my minstrel tambourine. But he was kind of like dressed like he was from Kiss with, with the hair and, and everything. And so Cedric explains in this video that, uh, you know, our, our good buddy Craig was here and he asked us which decade we were going to be playing. And, and we said we were going to be playing the 80s. And he said, all right, I can do that. And the problem was, is he thought we were talking the 1980s and we were talking the 1880s. So way to drop the ball, Craig. And he just kind of shook his head. But, but everyone had a great time. I mean, why not, why not do a rest stop tour? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful it's a great way to screw with people too, as they're, they're walking in, not sure what at all is going on as people are playing this old timey music on old timey instruments. But as, there was one couple that kept on stopping because they knew that we were playing after they saw us the first time. <laughs> so we, we for, for, for three had roadie groupies. For three epic stops, we had groupies. Yeah, it was awesome. And for those who don't know, I mean, if, if any of you are ever heading like westbound, to Bismarck or eastbound towards Jamestown, there is one outside of Minokin, North, North Dakota. And I know you guys played in there and it's it's a brick building and the acoustics in there are crazy. Like I think if a mouse farted in the corner, like it would sound like an air horn going off. And I mean, when you guys were playing just your banjos in there, I mean, the acoustics are crazy, but it is, you're right. Like it's also perfect if you just needed to tune your instrument or something like that to like get a sense. I mean, and, and I mean, you guys have played at Grand Portage. You, like you said, you played at Rendezvous this year for the public. Um, and they're all like period correct songs that cover a lot of the 19th century. Um, I've never had more fun than I've had when you and uh, Cedric, you know, start doing, even if we're just like messing around, like incorporating modern day songs in with like 19th century songs or just like singing to something like Goober Peas or all for me grog i mean just basic good wholesome songs i mean some of them have some dark meanings to them like if we're really going to get into the lyrics or feel sad yeah them, but and that's where the educational aspect comes in yeah <laughs> we're, we've been <laughs> off and on working on a fur trade version of don't stop believing by journey but it'll be don't stop believing by eric and Artie, but it'll have a different title um i was working on a version of whiskey in the jar called uh guitar and banjo on a keelboat about how they were stolen at the end of that trip. Um, so yeah, we, we, we get to have historic fun. <laughs> well, and then there was that one, uh, I think it was rendezvous 2019, um, right before the, the annual rendezvous run that, uh, the bank puts on out there. 
I got video of you and Sawyer when Sawyer was still on the interp staff out there. And you guys had your muskets. I don't, I don't think we brought the cannon out for that. And we were literally, I kid you not, we're doing a rendition of Taylor Swift um, doing, you know, and traders going to trade, 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 trade. Like, yeah, I mean, it, it goes, it can go on forever. Just the, the I mean, I want to use a, a word for it, but I'm not going to use it on here just out of politeness, you know, but like just the, the shenanigans of <laughs> what we can do, even just with song. Um, it just, it can get out of hand. Um, Leif, thanks so much for coming on. Um, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for sharing a lot of your story and just a lot of, uh, you know, what like we as living historians bring to the table. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me, uh, Brandon. Um, it's, it's really important that people, I, I feel anyway, that, that people understand it's, it's not just people playing historic dress up sometimes it is i mean everyone's got to start somewhere and for some folks that's the way it is yep. but the more that you do this and the more that you read and the more that you ask questions we we do you know encourage each other to improve in what we do and just the immense amount of joy we get to have with each other as living historians um, sharing that with the public that they can understand about our nation's history you know it's a it's an it's an amazing thing that I've gotten a lot of enjoyment out of, um, and if it's something that you've got an inclination about, um, check out, find out what kind of living history groups you've got in your area. Definitely check it out, uh, see what it's all about, and take advantage and be part of that group that helps share from a living aspect the history of our nation. Absolutely, I think that was a perfect way to wrap it up. Um, this will be obviously put on Facebook when we're done here with the live stream. I will be sure to put some pictures of some of the things that we discussed from other history events. Um, and I'll also put in some of the links for Eric and Artie, Drinking Through History. So if you wanna also check out some of the other projects and things that Leif is working on, by all means, go ahead and do that. So thank you, Leif. I'm gonna stop recording here and it'll probably end the call and drop it. So I don't want you to think I bailed on you. So, um, but thank you so much for coming on. and. I am Brandon Delva with The Past Less Traveled, and who knows, in 100 years, somebody could, reading, could be reading about your good or bad decisions. Thanks again, Life. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Past Less Traveled. We love our listeners, so if you'd like to hear more episodes, feel free to subscribe or follow The Past Less Traveled on whatever platform you enjoy your podcasts on. Also like us on Facebook at Past Less Traveled with two L's or Instagram at Past Less Traveled. And yes, we are on Twitter at Past Less Traveled, the number one. If you have someone or something in mind that we should talk about for an episode, feel free to send us an email at pastlesstraveled at gmail.com. Thank you, and we look forward to giving you more great history content in the future. Mm -hmm.